0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, May 2nd, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. A robust civil society means that any government that wants to control it will run into problems. That's one of the reasons Peter Shook argues in his new book, Why Government Fails So Often and How It Can Do Better. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. I'm delighted to be here at the Cato Institute uh, to present a book that I fear, um, may seem from its title like I'm bringing coals to Newcastle, Uh, why government fails so often. Uh, This is, after all, the Cato Institute. And uh, so uh, this message will be, I think, affirming to you. But what I hope to suggest is that um, you may not fully appreciate the reasons why government fails or the magnitude of the failure um, and and how it might be. Those failures might be uh, might be remedied. Um, that is to say, um, the most of the discussion about government failures are a highly theoretical, rhetorical, uh, deeply politically philosophical level uh, rather than uh, at an analytical level based on uh, uh, empirical evidence. And so that's if I have a contribution to make to the people at Cato uh, that uh, that may be to Uh, enrich that particular uh, kind of uh, of evidence for conclusions that you probably uh, have no need for uh, fortification about. Um, I'm also delighted to uh, be on a panel with uh, Wally Olson, with whom I've worked for, my God, it's almost 30 years. Um, uh, He edited a book to which I contributed way back in the 1980s. Uh, and also to be on a panel with Arnold Kling, whose work I've uh, respected for for so long. So I begin with the notion of a crisis, and of course every book uh, is trying to sell the idea that there is a crisis, uh, and this is particularly a, a, a crisis um, that again uh, Cato um, followers uh, are aware of, and and indeed have uh, emphasized in your own in your own lives. Um, I have a lot of data on the decline in public confidence in the federal government. I will only mention uh, a few uh, a few points um, of, of special interest. Uh, even among Democrats, there has been a rapid and and, and precipitous decline in uh, confidence. Forty one percent had uh, favorable views of the fa- federal government in 19- in two thousand and thirteen. That's 41% of Democrats. That's down 10% in one year. And this was before Obamacare uh, was was uh, launched. Um, according to the Brooklyn's Institution, 56% of Democrats um, uh, believe that the federal government is mostly or completely broken. Democrats. Um, and... Uh, uh, I mentioned that these statistics were gathered before uh, the Obamacare uh, fiasco um, uh, in its rollout. Uh, Tom Edsel, in, a, in an op-ed in The Times yesterday, uh, suggests that uh, the consequences of that rollout are far greater than, uh, than uh, is uh, anticipated by, uh, by most political observers. He thinks it's going to ramify... Uh, throughout the next uh, several uh, elections, uh, what is the biggest threat uh, to America's future, according to the public? Sixty-four percent say it's big government, uh, while only twenty-six percent said big business. And this this uh, polling was conducted only a few years after the recession, uh, so that's a, a, it seems to me a very telling uh, a point of. Uh, departure. In 2011, uh, um, uh, 79% of those polled were frustrated or angry with the federal government. 74% said the same thing in 2007 before the recession. Now, what are the reasons for this decline in uh, public confidence in the government? I propose uh, several explanations, but the one that I'm going to concentrate on and the one that constitutes the bulk of my analysis is Sort of a straightforward one. The government performs very, very poorly. When I say the government, by the way, I'm referring to the federal government, not other governments, and I'm referring to domestic policy, not national security, military, or foreign affairs policy. My book is limited in those respects. Um, uh, So that's my subject, why government fails. Uh, uh, And... um, Uh, There are a variety of theories as to why uh, the the government performs so poorly. Um, An emphasis that will not surprise those of you who live in Washington is is the explanation of partisan bickering and congressional paralysis. Um, The Democrats blame the Republicans. The Republicans blame the Democrats uh, for any failures that they're prepared to concede. Uh, I emphatically disagree with this. Uh, If you examine our history of political discourse, it has been tendentious, uncivil, angry, and uh, furiously uh, partisan from the very, very beginning. Uh, Some of the greatest achievements of the past, uh, the uh, Intercontinental Railroad and uh, Hoover Dam and Interstate Highway uh, System... Were accomplished only fitfully and after a protracted disagreement uh, by uh, policymakers. Polarization, I argue, is not the cause of our problems, it's the consequence of our problems. And there's a remarkable correlation that I think uh, confirms this, uh, this uh, point of view. Uh, first is that the growth in government spending and policy ambitions has paralleled almost perfectly, if you you chart them, the growth in public disaffection and contempt for government. Uh, Per capita capita spending by the federal government um, today is greater than in France, Germany, uh, and the UK. Uh, this, This growth occurs in good times and bad. It's unlinked. It's been set adrift from the Keynesian. Uh, cyclical uh, uses of, of government, um, and it doesn't depend on whether Republicans or Democrats uh, control what goes on in Washington. Um, the debt-to-GDP ratio of the federal government exceeds mo- that in most EU countries, and it also exceeds uh, the Latin American average, just to provide some uh, some context. Um, This growth of federal government is obscured by a a number of factors, uh, except to those who study these matters very carefully. One is the immense growth in private contracting uh, by the government, um, the immense participation in the implementation of government programs by nonprofits and uh, state and local uh, governments. Um, And the, the, the myth that the United States has a small public sector and as a welfare state laggard, although perhaps true in some comparative terms, is, uh, as a myth, (laughs) utterly false. Um, And uh, uh, one way of understanding what's happened uh, is summarized by, and I summarize in the book, by um, James Q. Wilson, the late James Q. Wilson and, and John Diulio, who distinguished between the old system and the new system. The old system, they write, had a small agenda. When someone proposed adding a new issue to the public agenda, a major debate often arose over whether it was legitimate for the federal government to take action at all in the matter. For the government to take bold action under the system, the nation usually had to be facing a crisis. Each succeeding crisis left the government bureaucracy somewhat larger than it had been before, but when the crisis ended, the exercise of extraordinary powers ended. The new system is characterized by a large policy agenda, the end of the debate over the legitimacy of government action, except in the area of First Amendment freedoms, the diffusion and decentralization of power in Congress, and the multiplication of interest groups. Under the old system, the checks and balances made it difficult for the government to start a new program, and so the government remained relatively small. Under the new system, these checks and balances make it hard to change what the government is already doing, and so the government... Remains large. So my central theme, the core of my core idea of my book, is that federal domestic policy failures are caused by deep, recurrent, structural, systemic, endemic conditions. It doesn't matter which party is in power. It doesn't matter what the state of the economy is. I think that as a result of this uh, and and, and, and as a result of uh, my analysis of the reasons for this, liberals, conservatives, and I dare say libertarians have an, an enormous stake in understanding these reasons. Well, how do I analyze uh, the reasons? Uh, first, let me say just a, a bit about my methodology. I rely on social science assessments by economists, political scientists, think tanks, GAO, CBO, Inspector Generals of, uh, of uh, Federal uh, Departments. My criterion for success or failure is cost-effectiveness. And I in, devote an entire chapter to explaining what I mean by cost-effectiveness, what methodologies exist, particularly cost-benefit analysis, to uh, to measure uh, uh, effectiveness. Um, I believe it is a very balanced and subtle um assessment of cost-benefit analysis, which is itself an assessment methodology, uh, and the principles for its use uh, in light of its shortcomings. Um, But that's what I'm talking about when I uh, discuss success. We could measure success in other ways. I I don't think any of them would be very satisfactory. Certainly political success is uh, is hardly uh, a a justified um, use of that uh, term. Uh, nor does the continuation of programs over long periods of time in multiple administrations a, a valid measure of success or failure. So what are these structural reasons for failure um, that I have been uh, presaging in these introductory remarks? Well, the first is political culture. The political culture uh, in the United States imposes enormous constraints on the effectiveness of government policy, whatever that government policy Uh, will be, although certain government policies are hobbled more uh, by these political constraints uh, than others. Um, And let me emphasize at the outset that many aspects of the political culture are highly desirable and ought not to be changed. Uh, But even if they should be changed, they can't be changed very easily. Indeed, I think it's virtually impossible to change these Features of our uh, political culture, precisely because they are cultural, they are deeply embedded in our in our uh, uh, in the way in which we view uh, the uh, the world around us. So, what are these um, what are these um, elements that I emphasize? The first is constitutionalism. Um, that's the most familiar uh, to you, and uh, one that the uh, Cato Institute uh, uh, emphasizes in its, its own work. I needn't rehearse that. A uh, second is decentralization, uh, which makes it very difficult for federal policy to, uh, to be implemented, or indeed for the federal government to know how its policies will impact those who uh, are its intended uh, beneficiaries. A third is the protection of individual rights. Uh, a sacred mission in, in, in our culture, and one that makes it very difficult for government to do whatever it wants to do effectively uh, because of the uh, strong protections given to, uh, to individual uh, freedoms. Uh, a fourth constraint is interest group pluralism, which is perhaps more, more robust in the United States than anywhere else. It's one of the glories of our system, but it's also a feature of our system that uh, renders government either impotent or uh, or, uh, or or feckless and uh, and and blundering. Um, uh, another is the acceptance of social and economic inequality by uh, by the vast majority of the population. Now this may strike you as is somewhat odd, but uh, when one compares the United States with uh, well, all other liberal democracies, we tend to care less about equality than we do, except for quality of opportunity. Important, important uh, uh, qualification. Uh, we less we care less about equality of results uh, than uh, any other societies. We worry less about it uh, uh, for uh, deeply, I think, deeply embedded uh, reasons. Um, so that uh, policies that are designed to promote equality of outcomes uh, meet a kind of resistance uh, that they would not meet in other countries, particularly where those efforts by government uh, create enormous uh, uh, inefficiencies uh, along the way, as they almost invariably do. Uh, Another feature of the the political uh, environment is uh, our moralism. Uh, Moralism derived from... Both our religious uh, convictions and the religi- the uh, uh, strongly religious uh, uh, basis of our uh, social uh, values uh, and uh, the nature of our politics which lends itself to uh, political moralizing uh, partly because it's mimicking uh, the religious convictions of the American people and partly for uh, for uh, other reasons another important political constraint is social diversity and what, what that implies is that uh, a, a uniform federal law uh, cannot uh, be nimble enough and flexible enough and and uh, uh, variegated enough to reflect the underlying needs and desires uh, of the population. Again, we are unique in our social diversity in any modern liberal uh, democracy for, for a variety of reasons, not simply for reasons of immigration, but also because of our religious uh, diversity and our Uh, economic uh, um, system. Um, Another important uh, constraint on the effectiveness of policy making is uh, populist suspicion of technical expertise and and official uh, discretion. Um, Public opinion, very powerful in the United States, more powerful, uh, I dare say, than in other liberal democracies which is one of the reasons uh, I I think why, uh, for example, uh, one of many examples, uh, capital punishment uh, is uh, uh, sustained in uh, most American states uh, even today, uh, whereas the elites tend to disfavor uh, uh, capital punishment. In Europe, the elites get their way, and the United States, uh, the people, broadly speaking, uh, get their way on issues of that kind. And then finally, civil society, uh, with its part of, its part of uh, the diversity of which I spoke earlier, uh, but uh, our civil society is so robust and so varied and so uh, energetic uh, that a government that seeks to domesticate it or to uh, regulate it, um, or even in some cases to work with it, is uh, going to run into problems of, um, of ineffectiveness. So that's the first important feature that's structural, that's endemic, and that hobbles federal policy. A second one has to do with incentives. And in this chapter, um, I discuss uh, public choice theory and its shortcomings uh, as a way of introducing the problem of incentives. Um, And I uh, develop a number of different uh, propositions based on my reading of of this literature. so I'll, I'll just uh, read them, um, the, the, the headlines in this, uh, in this distillation of uh, principles. Ordinary citizens have little or no rational incentive to participate actively in political activity. Political actors design policymaking institutions and processes to advance their self-interest. The political effectiveness of a group depends, among other things, on its ability to manage incentives so as to overcome structural obstacles to collective action. Officials have powerful incentives to provide voters and interest groups with short-term benefits and to hide the long-term costs that must pay for those benefits. The political dynamics of public policy depend on how it distributes its benefits and costs among voters and groups. Much political activity consists of narrow interest log rolling at the expense of uh, taxpayers, uh, something that uh, uh, Arnold Kling has written a great deal about, Moral hazard is a major source of incentive- based uh, programmatic failure and uh, and propositions of uh, of that kind. And the examples that I uh, provide and explicate uh, include many, many different kinds of programs, the Social Security Disability Insurance, uh, the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, Fannie and Freddie uh, and uh, and and a host of others. Um, uh, the next Systemic defect, if you will. Uh, Although these are not all defects, I should, as I said before, we, uh, our our system, uh, our society is rich and successful as a society, as distinguished from a polity, by reason of uh, many of these uh, factors. But, um, uh, uh, but the next one is uh, what I call collective irrationality, and here I emphasize voters' ignorance of. About public uh, issues. Uh, a literature that many of you have encountered in one way or another, uh, perhaps through Daniel Kahneman's recent book, but uh, the, the basic research was conducted by Kahneman and Tversky and, and has now become uh, a very, very uh, a much um, uh, discussed, uh, not only in the Academy, but, uh, but even in the halls of Congress. And Cass Sunstein, uh, whose work, many of you uh, know, uh, also relies heavily on this, on this uh, literature. A third literature is one that's been developed by my colleague at Yale, uh, Dan Kahan, which he calls cultural cognition. What he means by that is that in a, on a large number of public issues, when he tests for people's views um, on, on these issues, he finds that those views are almost entirely insensitive to new information, Uh, that people come to these issues with uh, preconceived cultural uh, 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 stereotypes and and, uh, ideologies, uh, and they're very, very uh, difficult uh, to move. And you can pretty much predict by knowing what those ideologies are, what their position is on climate change or abortion or any number of other issues where evidence might uh, alter the opinion of a, uh, of a rational um, uh, individual. Uh, another and extremely important uh, systemic problem is poor information. Uh, this, is, uh, this is, I hope, no uh, surprise to you. Uh, I hope you were, you were all marinated in the work of uh, Friedrich von Hayek, um, uh, who emphasized the nature of the information problem better than anybody else uh, before or since. But some of the policy manifestations of that are the Bureau of uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, um, uh, uh, information about gun use, uh, and, and it, it, they ha- their information is very outmoded, it's very limited and so forth, not because these officials are stupid, or ill-informed, but because Congress has made it extremely difficult for them to collect this data and maintain this data, much less analyze and, and employ it. Uh, the Volcker Rule, uh, which I discuss at some length, um, not that I've read it, but uh, and others, there's anybody else, uh, is, is another uh, example of how poorly informed those who write our laws and regulations are about the intricacies of the way in which markets and other aspects, uh, other uh, areas of our society uh, uh, operate. So uh, two weeks after the Volcker Rule was issued, uh, you may not have read this, it was not widely uh, uh, um, covered by the, uh, by the press, except for the Wall Street Journal, I think, is that um, uh, the uh, banking authority, regulatory authorities were obliged or felt obliged to uh, cut back on the Volcker Rule insofar as it applied to local banks. Why? Because it affected local banks in a way that the rule makers had not anticipated. These effects were dire, uh, dire indeed. Just, just one example. Um, another feature of our policymaking system is its rigidity, where adaptability and flexibility are needed. Um, here I provide a number of examples. Again, uh, uh, the Postal Service uh, has not adapted well to uh, to uh, the new technological and market facts. Not Again, not because they're stupid or indifferent to these changes. They actually have tried hard to convince Congress to allow them to compete with FedEx and other other, uh, uh, services. But uh, Congress has made it almost impossible for them to do that, in some cases prohibiting what would clearly be the rational uh, response uh, to that. Another example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Supreme Court, Uh, was wrong, I believe, in its decision last year uh, to strike down the Section 4 formula uh, 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 defining the uh, jurisdictions that were covered, but it was absolutely right in its denunciation of the anachronistic nature of that uh, formula uh, in 2013, which is when the decision was rendered as distinguished from 1965 when it was enacted. Uh, A sixth element is the lack of credibility needed to secure the cooperation of other actors. Um, This is extremely important and and quite interesting, in part because, and and also dismaying, because there's no good solution to this problem. The problem is this, that if you are going to induce other actors, be they state and local governments or or, or private actors, uh, to act in the way you want them to act in order for a policy to succeed— uh, you have to assure them that the rules of the game aren't going to change, uh, uh, that they can invest safely in uh, the uh, the uh, nature uh, uh, and the details of, of the program, um, uh, but government can't do that. Why can't it do that? Well, for a perfectly good reason. Government is supposed to be accountable to voters and to their changing uh, preferences, um, and uh, uh, so it, it it can't keep its promises if. if if you will uh, and there are very few if any techniques that will enable the government to bond itself and and, and lash itself to the mass with respect to uh, policies in ways that would secure the confident uh, participation of uh, of those whose resources it needs to uh, succeed perfect example of this Obamacare uh, 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 vastly expanded Medicaid uh, but uh, it uh, and in order to induce states to expand their Medicaid programs in the desired fashion, um, it offered to pay uh, 100% of the cost of expanded Medicaid for three years, and after that it would pay, I, I think it's 85%. Well, many states simply didn't believe it. They thought it was like being a, being given a gift of a baby elephant, uh, and, and uh, that's that's fine when, uh, when you receive the elephant, but then the elephant grows and grows and grows, and you have to feed them and house them. So um uh so lots of states are not not uh, adopting these otherwise uh uh, uh quite the plausible and perhaps even desirable uh changes. Um, then there's the problem of mismanagement which is endemic which is structural and I sp- <coughs> have I have a uh, a, a large disc- a lengthy discussion of fraud waste and abuse in the government I I don't need to rehearse that there except to say that Uh, Much of the fraud, waste, and abuse are the result of structural factors uh, um, embedded in uh, the way in which government uh, makes its uh, decisions, including uh, the complexity of uh, programs uh, and including the uh, very poor design of reimbursement uh, techniques. Um, uh, But I I won't dwell on that. A major uh, uh, theme of my book is that markets are... Uh, a fundamental impediment to effective public policy. And many of you will say, and I will agree in, in most cases, that that's a good thing. Um, but consider the features of markets uh, that uh, dog government efforts to uh, tame them or to, or to uh, live with them. Uh, the speed of markets compared with the incredible slowness and inflexibility of, uh, of government. The diversity of markets Again, government regulates in a rather uniform, uh, binary fashion, uh, you're either in or you're out, guilty or you're innocent, you're uh, in, th- in this category, you're not in that category, uh, whereas the, the markets cater to diversity, they even induce additional diversity where they can think they can uh, find a niche uh, that is uh, profitable. Uh, the information demands that markets place on regulators. Are very very high. It demands that cannot be met by uh, by regulators. Um, the price and substitution effects of markets means that uh, when government adopts a policy, it it it, it will uh, usually raise the price. Sometimes it will attempt to lower the price, but uh, it often, in, particularly in its regulatory policies, raises the price of a particular service or uh, or or activity. And of course, the market responds by trying to find other ways to. Uh, to meet that demand at a lower cost or at a higher quality and um, uh, and uh, that may, as in many examples that I discuss in the chapter, uh, undermine uh, if not utterly defeat uh, the government's uh, the government's policy. There are transjurisdictional effects of markets. Uh, markets do not respect jurisdictional lines um, and so um, uh, the not only is this uh, a problem in terms of international uh, competition, as with the Basel rules, uh, with uh, banking and international finance, um, but um, the creation of informal or black markets uh, uh, um, as a result of the ability of um, of markets to um, evade the kinds of lines that uh, that government uh, draws. Political influence, of course. Uh, uh is exercised by uh, market participants with uh, uh with uh, 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 through through campaign contributions uh, through uh, um, uh, the influence uh, wielded by uh, large uh, companies uh and uh and other other mechanisms that tends to subvert the effectiveness or the coherence of government policies even where those policies would might otherwise be uh, coherent or uh, uh, co- coherent and effective um, I have a considerable discussion of political influence uh, uh, on the uh, by markets on government and uh, I think it's a it's much more complicated than is usually understood markets do indeed exercise a great deal of uh, political influence on the other hand most of the influence that they exercise is not particularly partisan uh, and secondly, it represents the actual, real-world, individual effects of government policy on the part of its consumers, its employees, its investors, and so forth. So those are real. Those those are real uh, factors uh, that ought to be represented um, um, robustly in our uh, political process. Then there are uh, enforcement obstacles that the that markets uh, pose uh, to government. Um, there are lots of reasons for that which i uh, which I discuss, and again, some of them are are deeply rooted and and uh, unlikely to be uh, changeable. Rational expectations uh, a concept that economists have developed to explain why the market tends to anticipate policy changes and to incorporate to respond to those policy changes before the policies take effect and thereby neutralize the intended effect of those uh, policies and uh, in many cases um, two other uh, two other effects of markets one is that there are no good substitutes for market ordering uh, the, the the two major ones um, for mar- uh, alternatives to market ordering are are uh, law government policy on the one hand and social norms on the other and uh, uh, they have they certainly have their roles to play but they're uh, they're they're uh, uh, no match for markets in most areas of uh, public policy. And the final um, uh, effect of markets um, is moral hazard, which is immense, immense. And we've seen the, some of the consequences of that moral hazard uh, uh, in in recent years, particularly in connection with the uh, Great uh, Recession. Uh, but there are countless programs that exhibit this moral hazard. Uh, uh, that is the, uh, the tendency of uh, people to... Um, uh, to uh, act in ways that will ad- advance their uh, interests when the government, through its policy, makes uh, that activity or that service less costly uh, than it would otherwise be. Crop insurance, blood insurance, lots of examples of moral hazard. Fannie Mae and uh, Freddie Mac, uh, a, a very good, uh, good and sobering examples of that. Uh, the next uh, fundamental uh, uh, structural uh, problem that I uh, devote a, a very long chapter to is uh, the obstacles to implementation. Uh, these obstacles are important; they're not uh, they're not readily dispensed with. They're not readily uh, s- uh, circumvented, um, and government attempts to uh, uh, overcome these obstacles in a variety of different ways, and I. I divided this chapter into uh, the following categories just to give you a flavor of what I mean. Uh, Attempting to perfect markets, to supplement markets, for example, through infrastructure. And I have a discussion of Amtrak, uh, for example, which I came down uh, today, uh, and the uh, economic uh, disaster that uh, it has been. Uh, Suppressing markets, simplifying markets, subsidizing markets. I have a long discussion uh, under this rubric of, uh, of student financial aid programs, a disaster about to happen, um, if it's not already upon us, um, the ethanol program, many, many other examples, redirecting markets as in the effort under the Community Reinvestment Act to uh, force banks to uh, invest in areas that they uh, would not rather invest in on the theory that their failure to invest in those areas must be due to. Uh, to racism, uh, reintroducing markets, um, modifying markets and recruiting markets by recruiting markets, I mean those efforts largely in the environmental area to uh, to use market mechanisms to render regulation more uh, more effective that 's been very, very limited. There have been some successes with that efforts to expand that have been uh, very uh, uh, largely unsuccessful. Um, but that's an area in which um, I think um, markets and public policy might be more uh, compatible. Uh, then I have a chapter on the limits of law, the inherent limits of law. That is to say, the limits of law that, that assert themselves whenever one uses law as an instrument of public policy, which is virtually all the time. That's the, that's the, that's the form that policy uh, takes. and I, So I discuss its ubiquity. Uh, the trade-off between its simplicity and its complexity, um, uh, ambiguity, discretion. These are all endemic features of uh, of, uh, of legal uh, regulation. Uh, the procedural apparatus that goes along with it, uh, the inertia uh, that it creates, and then the crowding out of spontaneous, low-cost cooperation by uh, markets. And then I have a chapter on uh, bureaucracy in which I emphasize Uh, The problems created by congressional influence, the the extraordinary penetration of bureaucracy by Congress, uh, often for good reasons, uh, but with uh, predictable, baleful effects on uh, policy coherence. Uh, uh, The legalism that uh, bureaucracies tend to uh, cultivate, leadership problems, layering problems. And here I just want to read... How am I doing on time? Uh, You're a little past time. I'm a little past time. Okay, well, this is sort of amusing, so if, if I may, I'll just, uh, I, I, I write, um, Dear Reader, I'll bet that you did not know that there are now many federal officials who are denominated deputy, deputy assistant secretary, associate deputy assistant secretary, deputy associate, deputy administrator, chief of staff to the associate deputy assistant secretary, and that this thickening, this, this layering, has occurred in almost every, uh, every uh, department. I also discussed uh, compensation, status, performance, and morale problems in the bureaucracy. Again, they're, these are endemic, they're not, uh, they're not uh, uh, contingent on, on who is running the bureaucracy. Uh, the difficulties of imposing discipline, the failure of the, supreme, the uh, senior executive service, uh, the uh, difficulty of securing low-level uh, compliance, Uh, contracting out by the bureaucracy and its its poor management of uh, of, uh, contracts, and the isolation of the bureaucracy from the realities uh, that uh, surround it. Then I have a chapter on the policy successes, and I won't, because I'm out of time, I won't uh, rehearse those. I've uh, just written an op-ed, which I hope that New York Times is going to publish, which uh, tries to identify what I view as policy successes according to the criterion that I advanced, Um, and it tries to draw lessons from those examples as to why successful policies succeed, whereas the vast majority of policies uh, uh, do not. And we can discuss that in the Q&A if you're interested in that. And finally, I have a chapter on remedies. Uh, These remedies are incremental because I'm an incrementalist for all the reasons why everybody should be an incrementalist. Uh, in that the world is simply too complex for us, uh, especially our political world, too, much too complex for us to be able to predict with any confidence at all what, uh, what uh, uh, the effects of a particular change uh, will be. And these remedies are also cross-cutting. That is to say, I've, uh, I've decided not to propose fixes for particular programs, but rather to identify remedies that might cut across all government uh, uh, programs. And I've organized them uh, uh, according to to each of the structural conditions that I've just just, uh, uh, laid out uh, for you. So um, I'm out of time, and I appreciate your uh, forbearance, and I look forward to uh, Dr. Kling's comments and your questions, comments. Thank you. Peter Shuck is author of Why Government Fails So Often and How It Can Do Better. You can watch a full forum for the book at cato.org.